Please turn in your Bibles with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the second half of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6 this morning. Ecclesiastes 5, beginning in verse 8, and I'll read through verse 12 of chapter 6. This is God's powerful, inerrant, holy word. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, I have seen to be good and fitting What I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? 
And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? What's the best thing that could happen to you in this life? A lot of people, kind of an almost knee-jerk reaction to that question is to win the lottery. If only you could win the lottery, it would fix so many problems in your life and make your life so much easier. Even those of us who take a very dim view of the lottery as a means of gaining money still find ourselves joking once in a while about what good things would come to us if we could just win the lottery. Let me tell you a story about a man who won the lottery. Back in 2002, there was a construction worker in West Virginia named Jack Whitaker. And Jack Whitaker won what was at the time the largest undivided lottery prize in the history, a jackpot drawing that netted him $315 million, all for him. At the press conference after he won the lottery, he stood before the media and he thanked God. And he made a commitment to tithe to his church a tenth of his lottery winnings. I've often wondered what I would do as the pastor of that church. <laughs> another sermon for another day. But since then, let me tell you what's happened to Jack Whitaker's life in the last 13 years. First of all, his granddaughter and her boyfriend died of a drug overdose. He passed out in a strip club one night, and somebody came along and stole a briefcase that he had with him that contained $545,000 in it. He's had his home and his office robbed multiple times. He's been arrested twice for drunk driving, once for assault, and once for sexual assault. And his wife has left him. You probably know that there's been a lot of studies, a lot of psychological studies done about lottery winners. It's kind of a fascinating study. Here's a quote from the summary section of a report on multiple psychological studies looking at those who have won lotteries. It says, these studies found no measurable increase in present or projected future happiness and generally painted a picture of sudden wealth as a negative experience. In one particular study that was done in the late 70s, they found that those who had been paralyzed in tragic accidents actually scored higher in the indexes of happiness and pleasure in life than those who had won the lottery. In an article done in the mid-90s in the New York, New York Times, it had this quote, it said, there is a growing body of evidence that suggests that winning big often brings big, if not ruinous, trouble. You don't have to look very far in life 
to realize that the old saying is absolutely true, that money cannot buy happiness. Matter of fact, wealth often brings tragedy. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we've been listening to the worldly perspective of the preacher, the teacher, or the one we've called Q, as he's looked under the sun, limiting his study and his search and his worldview to what's under the sun, what's true in the physical realm under the sun. And he's been searching for meaning and purpose in every possible avenue in life, and he keeps coming up empty. All is vanity, meaningless, under the sun. And here in chapters 5 and 6, he addresses the lottery myth. The idea that if we could just have some big windfall of riches, our life would be better. We would finally be content. We could fix so many of the problems and get to where we want to go. Basically, here he's expanding upon what he's already talked about back in chapter 2. He didn't really elaborate back in chapter 2, but he alluded to this search. He's an expert in life with riches under the sun. Let me remind you of that passage, take you back to chapter 2 and beginning in verse 4. He said, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I, also, I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. He was wealthy beyond anyone here this morning, far beyond. You remember the conclusion he came to. It's in verse 11 of chapter 2. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. You see, he's addressing an age-old problem that is as relevant today, maybe more relevant today than it's ever been in history because people in general are much more wealthy than people in the world have been in history. This is really relevant to us. One writer says that in America we suffer from affluenza. We're infected by our affluence. And the problem is we don't even see it. John Stott, in one of his books, says that our blindness to the sin of materialism in our midst is similar to our culture's blindness to the sin of slavery 150 years ago. We're so immersed in it we can't see it. That's why we have to keep coming back to Scripture again and again and again to get this message which permeates every part of Scripture from beginning to end. That you cannot become happy through wealth. You cannot find meaning and purpose in life through riches. And that's what Q is here to warn us about this morning. Why wealth can't make us happy. And it seems like I shouldn't have to say it, but let me begin by reiterating that the problem is not with wealth. The problem isn't with money. The problem is with you and me. We can't handle it. I look at money in my life the same way I look at ice cream. I can't keep it in my house. I have no self-control. 
I can't allow it to accumulate in my house because it will go away quickly. The problem isn't with ice cream, the problem's with me. The problem isn't with wealth, the problem is with me. Q gives us three warnings in this passage. The first warning is this. Riches cannot satisfy us. Wealth cannot satisfy us. He begins, interestingly, if you look at verse 8, he actually starts, and it may, there, commentators wrestle with whether there's really a connection here or he's just making a point that's disconnected, but I think there is a connection. In verse 8, he makes a cynical political statement. Let me read it to you again. He says, in, we're talking about chapter 5 here now, Verse 8, he says, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. Bureaucracy under the sun. Because people lust for wealth and lust for power, because that's the nature of man under the sun, government is problematic. When people get into positions of authority, it inevitably leads to injustice and oppression of the poor because of our nature to lust after money and the power that it gives. Q says, don't be amazed at this. We know ourselves. We know our own heart. Don't judge government officials. You would do the same thing, but for the grace of God, if you were in their position... That's why scripture limits the power of the state, because sinners run civil government. And that's the nature of sinners. Socialism will never work under the sun, because socialism is built upon a gross misunderstanding of human nature. So Q goes from that cynical political statement to the root of the problem. And the root of the problem isn't political, the root of the problem is spiritual, It's the love of money. He says in verse 10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Money cannot satisfy you. Now, I know if somebody asks you that, you say, yeah, I believe that. But do you live as though you believe that's true? Or do you live as though you really believe that more money will bring more satisfaction and more contentment to your life? Money is addictive. Money is addictive for the same reason that drugs and alcohol are addictive. Because drugs and alcohol give you that rush of pleasant experience. And then once the pleasant experience goes away, you have this hunger to go back and experience it again. So you go back to the drug or you go back to alcohol to get that rush again. Well, money does the same thing. You know the rush when you go out and buy something new. It feels really good to buy something new, to own something. Just even to have the money to be able to buy something new gives you a rush. But remember, you know, just think back to the last new thing you bought in life that you really enjoyed for a while. How long did that rush last? And how long before you started thinking about the next new thing you needed to buy to get that rush back? You see, money is just like drugs and alcohol. It can't satisfy. It can only lead to greater, deeper, more destructive dissatisfaction in chapter 6 verses 7 to 9 he gives a picture that says all the toil of man is for his mouth yet his appetite is not satisfied what a lifestyle that's picturing what he's saying there is that we work 
so that we can eat and consume goods. But once we've eaten and consumed other goods, we have to go back and work again so that we have the ability to eat and consume goods. And we eat and consume goods so that we're strong enough to go back and work again so that we can eat and, you know, you see the cycle. And yet, for so many people under the sun, that's basically a description of their life. That's what their life is about. And you understand why Q gets to the end of it and says, it's all vanity, it's all meaningless, it's all empty. Back in chapter 3, verse 11, Q said, God put eternity in our hearts. He made us in his image. We can't be satisfied with a life like that. The second warning that Q gives is that riches complicate our lives. Riches, wealth, complicates our lives. Verse 11, he says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Whenever your wealth increases, when you get more money, guess what? More things and people come along to consume that money and possessions. That's just a fact of life. Now, he could be referring to literal people because it's patently true that when you get more money, more people tend to hang around you because they want to sponge off the benefits of being around somebody who has money. And he may just be referring to people, but it's a very good chance that he's actually just talking about life in general. That when you own more things, you have more that you have to take care of. And that complicates life. When I was just beginning in marriage and life as an adult, a wise person said to me, just remember this, that your expenses will always rise to meet your income. It's true, isn't it? You always think if I could just earn a little bit more, if I just had a little bit more money in my bank account, then I could relax. But every time you get more, more things and people tend to come along that you're responsible for and you have more complications to your life, things you have to take care of. It's very tempting to get a second or a third or a fourth car to make your life easier, but along with an extra car comes more expenses and more responsibilities. Great to have a swimming pool in your backyard or a boat to take down to the lake or a vacation house in the mountains or at the beach. But when you add those luxuries to your life, you add responsibilities, expenses, taxes, insurance. And so in verse 12, Q says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer. And by there he means the common laborer who kind of works and lives hand to mouth. He says, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Now, that could be just because he's overindulged and he's got indigestion and so he can't sleep at night. It could certainly mean that. But I think more broadly, he's saying the more stuff you own, the more riches you're responsible for, the more stressed out you are because of the responsibility and the burden that it brings into your life. You know, I think back of the first few years that my wife and I were married, both of us, when we talk of those years, back when we were in seminary as I was finishing my graduate education and when we went into my first little tiny country church to start in the ministry, we had so little money and so few possessions. But we look back on those days with great favor and longing now at times because life was so simple. I remember when we moved from our little efficiency apartment in in Pittsburgh 
two-room apartment, literally two small rooms, to the house that the church owned in my first ministry, and we moved all of our stuff from Pittsburgh up to that house, and everything was in a pile in the living room, everything we owned. We had no idea what to do with the other rooms in the house. But life was good back then, and it was much simpler. And we were so thankful for what we had. We don't have that same thankfulness, and we have so much more now. Because that's what riches and wealth does. It complicates your life and distracts you from the more important things. In verse 17, Q gives a a description of the man who lives for his wealth. He says, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, and in sickness, and in anger. You see, if you live for your wealth, if you love money, and you work to be wealthy, if you live for your wealth, that's the fruit of that lifestyle. You're alone, you're in the dark, you're vexed with stress, you're angry in your covetousness, And it ruins your physical health. There was an article, a follow-up article written about Jack Whitaker, the lottery winner in West Virginia. And in that article, one of his friends described him in this way. He sa- she says, it was like the money was eating away at whatever was good in him. It reminds me of the Lord of the Rings. How that little golem guy was with that ring, his precious. It just consumes you. You become the money. You are no longer a person. And she watched her beloved friend destroyed by his windfall of riches. Isn't that exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying in that passage we read earlier from 1 Timothy 6? Paul says, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We are not to live that way. We are called out of that slavery, that bondage to our wealth. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, and he will add all these other things to you that you need. You see, when we face, and we say this all the time, when we face severe trials in life, it reveals our heart, what our priorities are, whether we really are living for Christ and his kingdom or whether we're living for this world. Sometimes the Lord will take the things, even our health, away so that we'll find out what we're really living for. And it reveals our heart. Well, you know what? A windfall of riches does the same thing. It'll show in a hurry where your heart is. Wealth is given to us as a means to kingdom ends. Wealth is never given to us to be a distraction or a complication. We must see ourselves, no matter how poor or rich we are, we must see ourselves as being on a battlefield, in a spiritual war, on a mission, seeking the kingdom of God. Back when I had five kids, think about it, five kids in Christian school. It was just a short time, and I remember dreading those years as I saw them approaching, where my oldest son was still in high school, and my youngest son started his first year of school. I knew there was going to be a short period of time where I had five kids in Christian school in the suburbs of Philly. And it was tough to write that tuition check every month. You know how I got myself through it every month? 
I'd say to myself, you know, what if I didn't write this check to the Christian school? What if I instead used that money to go out and buy a much nicer car? Or to buy a vacation house or rent a vacation house in the mountains or at the beach? Or to put a swimming pool in the backyard or whatever else I could think of that I would spend that money on? God had provided for all our basic needs. And he provided the money to send my kids to get a Christian Christ-centered education. When I thought about what I could have used that big amount of money for in our monthly budget, and I compared it to the worth of my children being trained in the scriptures and having a biblical worldview to start their life, what would I have traded for that? How much would I have enjoyed the car, the nice sports car, you know, the not, I wouldn't have mail afford a Lamborghini, but a really nice sports car. What, what would I, how much would I have enjoyed it knowing that I had sacrificed my children having a, a biblical education for it? Seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things, other things will be added to you as well. Third warning that Q gives is that riches go away in the end. He keeps making this point. He keeps coming back to death. That's the ultimate reality. Look at verses 13 and 14 in chapter 5. There he, com- he uses an example. He- he's thinking of somebody that Q knows in his life. And he uses this person's life to illustrate his point of what it means, what happens when you live for your wealth. He's talking about a wealthy man, an honored man, a well-thought-of man in the community with-, with riches who suddenly, in a moment, loses everything in what he calls a bad venture. Now, That could have been some sinful choice that he made, could have been some business collapse, could have been a foolish mistake, it could have been some sudden tragedy, it doesn't matter, but in a moment he lost everything. What does he have to say for his life? What's the meaning and purpose of that man's life at that moment when he's lost everything? Jesus told a very similar story. Again, this is a consistent message through scripture. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12. He said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then to illustrate this, Jesus goes on to tell a story about another man. He says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Q and Jesus are talking about the same person. And so Q goes on in verses 15 and 16 to say, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? You're going to find that same statement about those who live for their wealth all the way from beginning of Scripture all the way to the end. It's repeated again and again and again. We come into this world with empty hands and we leave this world with empty hands Take note of that and when you decide what you're going to live for. In chapter 6, if you look at beginning in verse 3, he says, if a man could live a really long time and have a really, really big family, and you can't help but think back to guys like Methuselah back in early history, 
And he says, yo, yeah, think of a guy who might live about 1,000 years. He says, make make it twice that. What if a guy could live 2,000 years, he says, 1,000 years twice over, and have 100 kids, this huge family. And the phrase he uses to describe his life is he says, and he would lack nothing that he desires. Surely that man would have a significant life. That man would have a life of meaning and purpose, wouldn't he? Well, what is Q's assessment of that man's life? He says his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. He says that a stillborn child is better off than he. Better never to have ever lived than to live a wealthy, prosperous life and never experience real, lasting satisfaction. In that same follow-up interview article about Jack Whitaker's life, they interviewed his wife, the one who left him. And she blamed that Powerball ticket for ruining her family and her life as well as his life. And the quote that just rips your heart out, she says, I wish I would have torn that ticket up. You can see why every time the Lord Jesus Christ addressed the issue of money, his advice was, give it away. Give it away. And he addressed it often. It cannot satisfy, it complicates your life, and it goes away at death. In chapter 6, verse 9, Q says, better is, the, in the, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. What old proverb does that remind you of? Better as a bird in a hand than two in the bush. What a life to live, always wanting what you don't have and not appreciating what you do have. That's why Jesus taught us to pray every day. Lord, give us today our daily bread and thank you for it, Lord. That's the way we're to live, content with what God has given us. You know, seeing wealth, if God were to give it to you, seeing it not as this great remedy to all your problems in life, but as a burden and a a serious and heavy responsibility to carry out before the Lord. I tend to think of it, if I were ever to experience a financial windfall, and I've not really contemplated that recently, but if it were to ever happen, I would look at it the same way as if somehow I were to be elected president of the United States. I don't want the job, because I don't want the responsibility. I don't think I could handle the responsibility. I look at great wealth the same way. I don't want great wealth, because I understand more and more the responsibility that comes to the one who has it as a steward of what God has given for the sake of his kingdom. You see, contentment is what he's driving us for, toward. To realize that God has given you, he is sovereign, and he's given you what he has in his wisdom decided that you can handle. If you're poor, <laughs> if you think you're so poor, then obviously that's saying something about what God thinks you can handle. If you're rich and you're handling it well, then that's a great testimony. But few and far between are the saints of God who are wealthy and handle it really well for the sake of the kingdom of God as stewards. Realize that God has given you what he has given you. Be content in it and thank him for it, whether it's much or little. But, You always have to get to the bottom line. If that's all there is, 
even if you are content with whether you have in this life and you are a good steward of what you have before the kingdom of God, it's still all meaningless if death is the end. And Q points to that again. And when he points to death, he points us to the rest of Scripture to find out where we find real joy in wealth. And that's in the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, the meaning of Ecclesiastes in every passage in Ecclesiastes is that life is meaningless, which means wealth in this life under the sun is meaningless unless you look above the sun, unless you look to the word of God, which has been revealed from heaven to tell us about life beyond the sun and life beyond the grave. Remember Job? Job lost everything. He's just like the example that Q uses here or the example that Jesus used. He was a very wealthy, honored, prominent man who had everything and God took away his family, God took away all his possessions, all his wealth, and God took away even his health and he was left totally empty-handed. You remember how Job responded? It's going to sound familiar. Job says in chapter 1, It says there, he worshiped and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. He got the message, didn't he? He has that wisdom, but he didn't stop where Q stopped. Do you remember the next thing he said? Blessed be the name of the Lord. I came into this world with nothing. I will leave this world with nothing, but praise the Lord. Because Job knew that death wasn't the final word in his life. The difference between Job's perspective, which contains everything under the sun, but also the word of God from above the sun, and Q's perspective, who limited himself to only what's under the sun, is the hope that's beyond the grave. The hope of eternal life, and it makes all the difference. In chapter 19, verse 25, listen to Job's profession of faith. This is 2,000 years before Christ came. Job's profession of faith. For I know that my Redeemer, my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. That's why he could praise God even when everything under the sun was taken away from him. And it's the same way you could today. I read a story once about a lady who was dying of cancer, and she went to her pastor to make her funeral arrangements. And they went through all the details of the service and everything that needed to be done. And last thing she said to the pastor was, Pastor, one more thing. Could you make sure that when I'm buried that I have a fork in my hand? The pastor said, sure, I guess so, but why would, why would you want that? She said, well, you know when you go to somebody's house for dinner and they come to clear the plates, what do they always say to you? What do they say when people clear the plates at dinner? Keep your fork. She said, because I loved that moment in the dinner because I knew that the best was still to come. So when I'm laid out in my funeral and people see the fork in my hand and they say, Pastor, why does she have a fork in her hand? I want you to tell them. She faced death knowing that the best was yet to come. You see, that's the perspective. That's the worldview 
that enables you to handle however much wealth God has given you. You are very wealthy people. This is the wealthiest generation to live on the face of the earth. And God has called you to have an eternal perspective so that you are not sucked into this addiction to living for your wealth or even worse, living for wealth that you don't have yet. Here's the perspective, and I want to take you back to that great passage in 1 Timothy 6 again. Listen to this. This is God's word for you this morning. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life, meaning, purpose, eternal joy, because Jesus has died for our sins and he's raised from the dead and death is not the end for us. The best is yet to come. Christ died for takers in order to transform them into givers. And that's what we're in the process of becoming by his grace. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for the many ways, even in these past days or even hours, that we have lived like the world, where we've lived as though more money would fix our problems, where we've lived as though money is the problem and not our sinful hearts. Father, Teach us to have a worldview based upon the profound truth that Christ has died for our sins, has been raised again not only for our justification but for our adoption into your family, that we are princes and princesses within the kingdom of God and that we are wealthy beyond imagination for all eternity. Lord, with that perspective, may we use whatever wealth you have given us in this life under the sun for the sake of the proclamation of the gospel and for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Continue to transform us, we pray, by your grace, from takers into givers, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.